Well, nice to have all of y'all here, just like I said before. Um, just to introduce myself really quickly, my name is Mark Rose. I've been attending Watermark since April of 2010, uh, so not too long. Um, I taught five years previously at, uh, the church, at the church that I was at previously, taught uh, like an adult Bible fellowship for five years. And then um, I just graduated from Dallas Theological Seminary this past summer, and i uh, uh, am currently teaching at Prestonwood Christian Academy. I taught for five years in Mesquite. I taught science, um, physics, and chemistry, and this year I'm teaching the freshman Bible class at Prestonwood Christian Academy. So um, this is my first time to actually get to teach at Watermark, so I'm really, really excited about it. It's, um, I haven't gotten to teach to adults in a long time, which is always, it's, it's a different in a good way kind of thing. So um, just really looking forward to, yeah, it's a different in a good way kind of thing. Um, just really looking forward to, to getting to do this and kind of jump in and really be a part of uh, this church that we've gotten so much from from over the last year, year and a half. So um, I just wanted to start out with my experience with the Trinity a little bit um, and then just kind of briefly go around and give you all a chance to introduce yourselves, just saying who you are and why you're here, um, because I'll kind of explain why I'm here um, right now. Um, I became a Christian in 1995. Um, uh, it was my freshman year of high school. Um, I had an FCA camp, Fellowship of Christian Athletes. I didn't grow up in a Christian home. Um, but um, went, to, uh, went on to Texas A&M. Grew up in Mesquite, so grew up in the Dallas area. Um, uh, ended up going to Trinity University in San Antonio and then Texas A&M. And um, uh, uh, graduated from there in 2002. And that's, I began seminary in 2003. So you can do the math on that. It took me eight years to get out. Um, I have, a, I have a wife and two kids to show for it, though, So uh, along with the degree. So um, uh, I was telling David that uh, me and my wife actually met on a plane ride from Dallas to Frankfurt while we were going to Israel on a class trip. So, um, so I got a lot more out of seminary than just a degree, for sure. But, um, but the first time that I was ever taught, and I was by no means a passive learner, um, and passive in my Christian faith, but the first time I was ever taught on the Trinity was in 2004 when I was sitting in a seminary classroom. Um, uh, and as my professor took the time to point out, if we say that we want to serve God, if we say that we want to worship God, if we say that, um, that our beliefs center around God, it's a, it's a little bit off that one who is seeking, one who is seeking to learn, isn't, hasn't been sat down and taught about the Trinity or even given the opportunity to learn about the Trinity, um, uh, who, which, who is the actual person of God, um, just like the class title says. That's who God is. You know, um, We can't get around it with our Christian faith. And I'll kind of explain why we can't get around it in regards to our Christian faith. Um, uh, we can't get around the idea of the Trinity. Um, but... Uh, that's why I'm here for you, just to give you the opportunity that I didn't have, um, uh, give you the chance to ask questions, to think about it on your own, um, and uh, just kind of help you all, do my best to help you all um, uh, find your way in regards to um, what do we say, what is the Christian faith always said about who God is um, as we go along. And, um, you know, wherever you're at, don't worry about... Um, you know, they won't they won't ask me like, you know, sometimes people get antsy about the Trinity. They're not going to ask me, OK, so can you list uh, of the people who signed the sheet? You know, who's Trinitarian, who's non-Trinitarian, who's, you know, this it, it has to be a discussion because it's a, a statement of belief and a belief can be two different things. Um, uh, I want to help you understand why I believe and why the church believes and um, why the church has always affirmed that this is an integral part of our Christian faith um, to believe in, in what we call the Trinity. Be sure to ask any questions, especially if, you're, if you have a specific question, just raise your hand or interrupt me. Like I said, I teach high school, so either one, I'm used to either one. It doesn't bother me that much. Um, uh, you know, I wanted to start out with a little bit uh, addressing some of... Can you all see that okay with the lights on and everything? It's okay. All right. Um, kind of addressing some of the perceptions of the Trinity. Um, so I found this video, um, particularly just starting with how do you think the Trinity is often perceived by those who are not Christians? This is more, um, uh, more than 
well, we'll start with, with this video and then I can uh, maybe make some more specific applications. Um, uh, so the volume I might have to. Now it seems that this whole concept of the Trinity seems to be quite a sticking point for non-Christians. Seems to be you just can't seem to understand what's going on with the whole Trinity thing, so you just dismiss Christianity. Well, I'm going to explain it to you now. It's complicated, but I'm going to explain it to you so you can understand it and you can move on to convert it, okay? It's like this, all right. You got God and then there's Jesus and then there's the Holy Ghost. Now, these, these are three separate things, uh, but they're not. You know, but they are, but they're not. You see, but they are. Now, now there's, there's, there's God and then Jesus and the Holy Spirit. And then God and Jesus and the Holy Spirit, that they wanted to, you know, get people now. So, so the Father, uh, God, who's the Son, had Jesus. You see what I'm saying? And he put Jesus on earth. Okay, so God stayed in heaven. And he put Jesus on earth. Now it says in John 10.30 that I and the Father are one. Okay? So, so that just shows that Jesus is God and God is Jesus. And God who saved in heaven put Jesus on earth who is himself God. So therefore God stayed in heaven. And Jesus went on earth and Jesus stayed in heaven. And God went on earth and God stayed in heaven while he also went on earth as Jesus went on earth and in heaven. Yeah, and they were both in, in heaven and earth, but they were in neither as well. You see what I'm saying? <laughs> and John to say in John 14:28, I go unto the Father, for the Father is greater than I. You see? So the Father, who is the Son, is greater than the Son, who is the Father. Alright, so Jesus is God, and God is Jesus, and God is greater than Jesus. So God is greater than Jesus, and Jesus is greater than God, and God is greater than Himself. And Jesus is greater than himself, whom are both greater than the Holy Ghost, which is less than both of them. You see? Now, then, then, Jesus dies on the cross, and he prays to God, who is himself God, who is in heaven, who is also on earth. And then, then, Jesus dies, and he descends into hell. Alright? Now, we know from the Bible that hell is simply where God is not. So, Jesus, who is God, descends into the place where God is not, thus making it no longer hell, but it remained hell, you see. It was hell, but it wasn't, but it was, but it wasn't, but it was. Okay. And he stays there for three days, and then he ascends up, and he takes the right hand of the Father, who is himself the Father. Therefore, Jesus takes the right hand of God, and God takes the right hand of Jesus, and Jesus takes the right hand of himself, and God takes the right hand of himself, whom takes the right hand of the Holy Ghost, which is himself, Jesus and God. Now, these are both two entities, one to the right of the other, but they are the same entity, but they're not what they are, you see? Now, you see how much it helps when it's understandable? When it's made understandable to you, I just described it, you have no excuse now. Now you understand, like I do, how much sense it makes. Okay? Now you have no excuse for not being a Christian. Alright? Now you know the whole Trinity thing. So go on and convert. Amen. Okay, so... Sometimes Christians don't feel like they have much better understanding than that, you know. Um, But... I just uh, this was entire. I found this on YouTube. It's entitled "The Best, uh, the Simplest Explanation of the Trinity," um, and it's the first video that comes up when you type in, you know, "explanation of the Trinity." Um, I'm I'm guessing that that guy's not a Christian. In fact, I would say he's not. Um, but it's definitely receives this type of perception, um, and a lot of times we kind of feel. We're like, that's not right, but we feel kind of hopeless and helpless to be able to correct what was said. Um, I'm not going to tell you. I'm going to give you the simplest explanation, definition in the world, or that there is a simple, that this isn't something that we have to wrestle with, that that no faith is required. Um, What I can tell you is it's it's not that, Um, but... I'm, what I'm planning on doing is kind of 
trying to bring you along and, and help you understand the tensions that exist and why they exist. Um, I've always heard Christianity is a faith of tensions. Um, you know, in another room, they're teaching on predestination, you know, and um, some of these issues. So does God make us be Christians or do we choose to be Christians? And the reality of it is, is that there's tension in those kind of, in the in that aspect. So is God all loving or is he just? When we say he's both, which is what Scripture says, we have tension, right? So we have to understand, I'm not saying that I can relieve all the tension for you, but hopefully as you just continue to process this and particularly process what's in Scripture, which will be a big emphasis of what we're talking about today, that we can have a better, more clear understanding that, that we can communicate more clearly, um, that we can address when address it when people talk like this. And, you know, it, I was also I was looking at a variety of different videos that I could find and found a good one for Muslim um, in regard to the Muslim faith and, and what they believe, you know, and, and, and just from other studies that I've had. And, and we can talk about that as we get down to what we don't believe. And, um, uh, and maybe once we're trying to synthesize some of this, we'll talk, uh, kind of contrast it with some other faiths. Um, uh, so... This is more a Christian standpoint. I, I assume that the person who posted this video would uh, consider themselves a Christian. And, and uh, we have a very special guest to finish off our Knowing God series. It's my honor to introduce the Trinity. Uh, we are thrilled to meet you. Uh, would you mind starting by telling us, uh, well, who's who? Certainly. I'm the Father. The Son. Guess who? <laughs> I gotta admit, uh, it's not quite how I pictured you. <laughs> oh, is this better? Or worse? Better? Or worse? Right, obviously, this is not what we look like. But if I was to show you my real face, you'd all be dead. No, <laughs> look out. The point is, we are one God in three persons. I, I am. Say the Lord. There is so much confusion about who and what you are, how you operate. Would you mind unpacking that? Certainly. Let me start off by saying, I'm not three different gods. I am one. And we're not three different parts of another God. We are God. God. All right, I think that pretty much wraps it up. Hmm? Well, the, the problem is, you can't get it. We made you with wonderful brains, but the analogies you have in this world just aren't adequate enough for you to understand who we are. The three-leaf clover, water, steam, ice. Someone even compared us to an egg. Yeah, they all just fall short. But keep trying. You're just so darn cute when you try. Bill, and the third row, you had a question. Uh, yeah, uh, yeah, yeah, I do. I was, I was wondering... No, I'm not going to tell you when you're going to die. Oh. Um, I have a question about pain and suffering. Uh, excuse me, I'm sorry. Yeah, I don't think we know you. Of course you do. I'm Sally. Sally Meyer? Sally. Yeah, ooh, yeah, that, not ringing a bell. No. See me after. Yeah, if you want to get to know us, just talk to us. It's that simple. Let me just cut to the chase. We are God, you're not. Everybody good? All right, well, we got to run. Got a little uh, mess happening in the Middle East. Yeah, when don't we? <laughs> Tell me about it. Oh, well, um, well, thank you so much for stopping in. Uh, remember, if you don't believe in the one whom I sent, you don't believe in me. Oh, and don't get him wrathful. You wouldn't like him when he's wrathful. <laughs> you always have to have the last word, don't you? You know I do! Uh, and, um, amen. Okay, so, you see, pretty much, you know, that's where a lot of people just try to leave it in a sense, you know? And where it's, well, I'm three, and I'm one, and it just is, and so... Get over it. Let it be what it is. And, you know, there's a certain validity in that. 
But to say that that's all that we can know, to say that we to say we can understand everything about the person of God would would be as um, uh, as false, you know, about who he is and his existence is as false as to say that we fully understand the magnitude of the grace that he's given us in Jesus Christ. Right. Um, that we fully comprehend that, that we fully comprehend uh, the magnitude of his love, how much he cares for us. Um, but just because we can't fully comprehend it, it doesn't mean we can't comprehend it at all. Right. Um, uh, I can know his love even if I don't know it in its entirety. I can know his mercy even if I don't know it in, his, in, 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 it, in its entirety. Um, and so we don't want to get caught in this kind of almost like a fatalism of, well, we just can't know anything about it. And so why bother even trying to understand it at all? Um, uh, which is where a lot of Christians just rest, you know. Um, it's better than the alternative of rejecting it, but, um, but we have a much more opportunity than that. Um, God's given us much more opportunity to understand um, who he is um, in that regard. So, first of all, on the worksheet, um, either one, if you want, you're welcome to do it on the PowerPoint slide or at the, somewhere on the, uh, the other worksheet where the scriptures are. Um, uh, just answer two questions. What comes to mind when you hear the word God? And what comes to your mind when you hear the word Trinity? Just a three, stream of thought. What's at you know? What's at stake here? You know, because that's sometimes you know you hear people saying that, and I'll bring that up a little bit later on, especially when we look at some of the ways to not interpret the Trinity um, that people are doing now, and where they see it as a as a point of division. Um, the thing that's at stake here is: Do we know God truly? Um, Jesus said, "This is eternal life that they may know the one true God." Like it's knowledge of God, true knowledge of God is intimately tied with the experience of of eternal life. It's a it's an important aspect and it's why it's worth this trouble. Like I said, I'm not going to tell you. I'm just going to give you some pat answer and oh, they just weren't telling you the easy answer. And you should you could have memorized this, you know, whenever you were when you were this tall and you would be you would have been in good shape. Um there's a reason that I wasn't taught the Trinity until I was 23. And I don't think it's just because the people who were teaching me were lazy or whatever. I think one of the big um, or, you know, just completely negligent of their responsibilities, I think it was intimidation, too. I think it was lack of understanding, too. Um, but one of the things, uh, one of the hurdles that we have to come, that we have to get over, which you all have gotten over a lot just by even coming today is. Why do we do this? Because we want true knowledge of God. And we say, if there is truth, then true knowledge of God is important. Um, uh, and just to, you know, to affirm you all again, just in coming and, and being willing to share. Um, because it can be scary. I remember it being scary for me. Whenever we're talking in class and the professor's talking about what the Trinity is, and I'm like, that's not exactly what I think, you know? Um, that's not exactly how I have it in my head, the way you're explaining it. Um, in fact, you know, like it just in my own evaluation, I'm like, I'm mildly heretical. You know, if you can be mildly, you know, uh, you know, just just think about that. But then um, that we know that we're we're pursuing this true knowledge of God. That's why y'all have come here today. And that's why I'm here to help bring you along, not to give you the final answer, um, not to give you everything you'll ever need to know, but to help bring you along um, uh, through that through that thought, through that thinking and through that processing of what Scripture teaches, which is, a, once again, what we're going to come back to and what this comes down to, really. Um, for many Christians, there is a significant disconnect between these two terms. That's absolutely right. Um, you're not alone. <laughs> Um, uh, in in thinking that. So um, we're going to start out by looking at the origin of the doctrine of the Trinity. And what I mean when I say that is our attempts to explain 
God as Trinity. Not obviously, I would I believe the Trinity has existed from eternity past. Um, it doesn't have a beginning. We didn't come up with it. We are, it, but our first attempts to explain as a community, as a community of believers, how did that come about? Why did that come about? Um, and what does it look like? So I'm going to take you back in history and, and we're going to kind of come forward to help you understand um, how this is supposed to affect our lives. So, let me see what time it is. So we can take a break. Okay, we can get started. So, if first of all, we'll start with Moses, okay? We won't start, we, won't, we don't need to start all the way from creation, but we'll start with Moses. Um, uh, if there's one thing, Deuteronomy is Moses' last sermon, basically, is a good way to think of it to the people before they were going to cross over and he was going to die. And he's reiterating a couple of things. This is called the Shema um, by Jews. They still repeat it. Every time they're in synagogue, they're going to say this. Um, and it was no less prevalent back, back in the day. Um, it's Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 5. It's what, it's what people were supposed to pass on to their children and their children um, and continually pass on to them. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Uh, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. This is what they repeat continuously. Um, this is what they were supposed to believe. If in case you've never seen this before, the anytime you see Lord capitalized, the whole word capitalized in your Bible, that's actually when the proper name is used. Um, uh, the proper name that was given to Moses in Exodus. Um, uh, people believe it's pronounced Yahweh. Um, if you've heard people throw that, you, you hear it a little bit more in our culture now in songs and stuff like that. Um, but there was such reverence for it, it was not actually spoken. Um, they would substitute the word Lord or the name. Um, instead, and so that's why. So if you if you're ever reading along in your Old Testament and you see that, now you know why that is. But um, when Jesus came on the scene, he affirmed just as much. Um, uh, whenever people ask, you can turn to Mark. Um, I'm going to be in the Gospels a good bit today, but <clears throat> turn to Mark. 12, 28 through 30. If everybody has it, I don't think there's a... Make sure I don't have any questions for you, but you can read along. I'll read it out loud as well. Just to... Um, just to give you an idea, this is in the middle of when, when people are really starting to question Jesus about who he is and what he's doing. Um, bless you. Yeah. Um, so it says, one of the teachers of the law came and heard them debating, talking about Jesus and the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Um, uh, they were debating different points on belief. Uh, he said, noticing that Jesus had given them a good answer, he asked him, uh, of all the commandments, which is the most important? Uh, the most important one, answered Jesus, is this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. So when asked, Jesus said, this is, he reaffirmed that this is the most important command. And so the focal point of this command is the, your Lord is one. And a big part of this was the cultural setting that they were in at the time, which was Egypt, um, Canaan, the, the land of Israel, the people who were in Israel before the Israelites were there. Um, they were polytheists. Have you all ever heard that term before? Okay. A polytheist is someone who believes. So there was a there was a God of the chair and a God of the sun and the God of the moon and a God of the road and a God of the. And so there there were gods everywhere. And so he reaffirms that this God is the only God that there is. Um, but as Jesus came on and was kind of was on the scene more and more, even after, even before he made this affirmation of this being the greatest commandment, he was already causing problems, though, in this conception. Um, uh, Jesus was the one that disrupted things 
when he came. And so start with Luke 5, 17 through 26. And if you just want to take it and try to answer those three questions. Uh, and then I'll give you a little while to do that and then we'll talk about it. Let's just kind of briefly try to catch what's going on in this scene, why um, why this scene's significant. So perhaps some of y'all have either heard or read this story before. It's the story of there's crowds following Jesus at this point because he's healing everybody, right? So there there were no hospitals back then. There were guys who would wave sticks at you or pull some leeches and put them on you or something like that. And so this is a man who's healing people of whatever infirmity they had. So people wanted to get to Jesus. These men wanted to get their friends so badly to him that they dug in the root. He was in their house. They couldn't get in the house with him because he was on a stretcher. He was paralyzed. And so they dug the roof off because they were just dirt roofs. They dug the roof off and lowered him down. So how did Jesus interpret that great effort that they went through? Yeah, this is faith, right? This is the essence of faith. It's, it's acting like the, they show, they demonstrated that they believed Jesus could do something for their friend um, by going to extreme efforts to make sure that he had that opportunity. Um, uh, it's a good reminder to us of what faith looks like. Um, so whenever he gets there, though, Jesus says something rather peculiar instead of what you might think. OK, get up, walk which is kind of, you know, what the expectation might be. He says, your sins are forgiven. So what do the Pharisees get upset about? Blasphemy. Yeah, it's blasphemy. They say that's blasphemy. Why? Because to him, they're not God. He's not God. Yeah, and only God can do that. You see, the problem is Jesus is claiming to do something that only God can do. And that's what they're thinking. Not to mention the fact they just think it and he calls them out on it. Um, <laughs> but then this is the part that honestly I didn't get until this last year. Even just, you know, as I continue to read, you, you continue to read scripture. You continue to grow in it and gain things from it. Can, did anyone pick up what Jesus is getting at when he says, he just tells them, he says, which is easier to say? Your sins are forgiven or get up and walk. But so that you might know that the Son of Man has the power to forgive sins. Get up and walk. Do you catch what he was doing with the with his phrasing and stuff like that? His whole point is get up and walk in, in Greek is even less words, it's two words. He's saying, I can forgive sins. And he's not calling into question their assumption that only God can forgive sins. He's saying in fact. It's so that you would know that. It's so that you would know that truth about me that I can forgive sins, which only God, which I, which He never um, says someone other than God can do. It's so that you know that about Him. He said those. His point to the Pharisees was, I changed the, I chose these words specifically to tell you that. So. That starts creating a little disequilibrium, right? So the Pharisees start hating him, which you'll continue to see throughout the Gospels, you know, all of the Gospels, and see its culmination in the end with their killing him, which we'll look at again. But it's throwing everybody off, even the people, you know, because everybody was still praising God on his behalf. The people who weren't so hardened that they could at least go, he just healed a paralyzed guy and no one can do that. They were still praising, praising God on his behalf because that's who Jesus was giving credit for it um, as he was doing these things. But these types of incidents, because this is by far not the only one that's like this. Um, I couldn't give you an exhaustive study. I didn't think y'all wanted to be bored to death either. So um, these are types of in- incidents ended up creating confusion with observers in general. And so turn to Matthew 16, 13 uh, through 17. Sorry, I couldn't avoid it, avoid it being Bible drill, though. Matthew's before Luke, in case. <clears throat> so Matthew 16, 13 through 17, and you've got two questions on that one. Oops. 
Then once we get done with this, uh, this slide, we'll take a break, take our first break. It's always good to leave you with a question. Matthew 16, 13 through 17. Matthew's the first one. Then Mark, Luke, and John. Oh, absolutely. Anytime, please. So where it says, what were the Pharisees upset about? Mm-hmm. Obviously, the answer was blasphemy. But the Pharisees were raised strict Jewish. Yes. So their belief was that there would be a Messiah. Yes. So the idea that somebody would come that could do that shouldn't have been formed. They just didn't believe mm-hmm. it was him. What Messiah meant is is at issue. Is one of the big issues. That's what, and that's what we'll talk about now. What does it mean that he's the Christ, which is Messiah, the Son of God? What is the significance of that? And who who is that? And Jesus calls the Pharisees back to that over and over again. Um, and and the significance of that. So were they expecting Messiah? Absolutely. Um, people try to make arguments these days that that's not true and it's ridiculous. They were expecting. Um, history shows us through, you know, I'm not going to go into all the details, but it shows us time and time again. They were expecting this. Um, uh, what they were expecting, though, is very different than what Jesus was offering. Which, which actually gets brought up in this Matthew passage. And I, I'll, I'll bring that out a little bit. I was tr- questioning whether I'll bring that out a little bit, but... Um, yeah, I'll make sure to. So looking at uh, Matthew sixteen thirteen through 17. So it's simple. They're, fo- they're traveling along and Jesus takes the time. Who do the people say that I am? So why do you think he would bother asking his disciples that? This is a pretty subjective question. Don't worry. There's no, you know, there's no like grand right answer or anything like that. Was just trying to see if they understood that he was God? Yeah, I think, you know, and 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 working towards even even maybe even lower than that of whether he was God or not, but whether he was the Messiah or not. I think that definitely is a part in it. Yeah. And I think I I think that it's kind of an opportunity to talk through maybe some doubts that they were having, because I know that you you know, when people tell stories, they're like, well, my friend thinks that and they really mean kind of you know, thoughts that they've had in the past that, you know, give, or it's not until somebody asks you a question that you realize what you really think. Right. Absolutely. And it, why did I ask y'all what comes to your mind when you hear the word God? What comes to your mind when you hear the word Trinity? Because I want this to be a, a genuine conversation with yourself. With, with, if, if we can't have that genuine conversation, then, um, then your belief can't really be effective. Does that make sense? You know, um, if you're just picking a position and you're hardened in it, you can't actually have a discussion about it. Um, I'm in the process of trying to teach ninth grade students this, um, uh, that we can't really understand our faith. We can't really interact with our faith. We can't really find the truth and believe it if we can't have these conversations. And I, I think that's absolutely part of what Jesus is trying to do here. Um, what are they saying? What are other people coming up with? And, and there's reasons for each of these, a prophet, because they knew prophets of old did miraculous things, right? John the Baptist was beheaded at this time, so they knew he was something, and so maybe he's come back. Um, so they're, they're coming, there are reasons for everything, all these answers that they, that they came up with, that the people outside of them came up with. But then Peter steps forward, and, you know, and he asks the question, what do you say, though? He's trying to help them draw those distinctions. What do you say? And Peter, to his commendation, comes forth and says, you are the Christ, you are the Messiah, the one we've been waiting for, um, the Son of God. This concept of Son of God is definitely present in the Old Testament, related to the Messiah, but the question of what it meant is ambiguous to say the least. Um, uh, Exactly in in some psalm, in a psalm, the people of Israel are called the sons of God. Jesus brings this up in his defense whenever people are trying to stone him one time in the Gospels. He says, well, come on, y'all, the ones who received the law are called the sons of God. Why can't I call myself the son of God? 
He's being intentionally ambiguous. And, you know, this is another affirmation for, for each of you. The 11 disciples committed themselves to Jesus because they were confident that he was the source of eternal life. There's another passage where they say that whenever in we're actually about to go over it, I think either this weekend or next weekend in in the main church, whenever we're in John and it's in John chapter six, when everybody else starts leaving, when Jesus says, you're going to have to eat my body and drink my blood. And he turns to his disciples, he says, are y'all going to leave, too? And. They say, who else are we to go to? You're the source of eternal life. They committed himself. This is your blind faith that you're talking about. But there is much debate. And I hear very few people saying that all 11 of those disciples, other than Judas, had it down pat that Jesus was God from day one. I find, I hear there are very few people, you know, I'm not 100% great on, you know, every aspect of this argument, but... Uh, I hear a lot of people who um, I've heard of a lot of people who would say who would say for sure before the resurrection, before they saw Jesus after the resurrection, that they didn't get it yet, that he's God. So this is part of he's he's helping us come along, which he does in a variety of different ways. He's being patient with his disciples, just like he's patient with us, you know, as we see in our lives. He's trying to help their understanding come along um, because this isn't necessarily something that was absolutely tied to the, the Christ coming. Um, uh, and he's trying to help them understand that. But right now, they're still even when the affirmation comes out of their mouth to say that they fully understood the implications of that um, would be too much to say at this point, in my opinion. Maybe you could find someone else who would say that they did, but. They're still working through this. You'll see the Gospel of John particularly is, is very good to see this because continually after the signs, there's major signs that we're talking about as we go through the Gospel of John. You know what it says at the end of most of those episodes? And the disciples believed. You know, the only thing is, it says it after each episode. And the disciples believed. And the disciples believed. And the disciples believed. And the disciples believed. It's not they just didn't get it all. Oh, of course, God's a human being standing right in front of me right now. Because when you have this extreme monotheism, it's it's the same situation for a Muslim. This isn't this isn't, you know, a minor adjustment of who God is. This is a major fundamental adjustment. Um, You go from the God who said, Moses, you can't see my face because you would die to God is standing in front of me and talking with me and touching me and interacting with me. So, you know, we get so used to it because for the last 2000 years, our culture has inundated us with this concept. Um, But for a strict monotheist, this is a radical off the charts idea um, that that God would be a human being. Um, So. Why don't we go on and take our first break? Um, I'll split it up a little bit. Why don't we do like five to seven minutes somewhere around in, in that region? Is that good? Is that good with everyone? Okay. <laughs> so you're welcome. They have all the food and stuff out there, drinks, um, any restroom breaks that you need to take. It's always good to leave you with a question so you can mull it over. What does it mean to say that Jesus was the Christ, the Son of God? Breakdown issues for some reason. No, no worries. So no worries. Yeah, you had you had to go pick her up. No, or? I had something to pick her up. Oh, okay. Yeah, okay. Leave her in kid care, and she had class this morning. I just kind of burned her out today. Oh yeah. How old is she? She's eight. Okay. She's usually not that bad. Though. Yeah, I have a three-year-old son, so he loses it whenever it gets too long. Exactly he's like gone. A three-year-old. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, like I said, it doesn't. It, it couldn't bother me less. Uh, and I taught that whenever I taught for those five years at my other church for two and a half of those years, it was a, a young couples class. And so during the time that during those two and a half years, I think at, out of twelve couples that were there, eight babies were born. At least eight babies were born. So for the first, you know. Six months, at least, you know, uh, for for a lot of them, the babies, if they were there, if they were going to be there at all, they were having their their baby was there with them. So, and I want, I would much rather them be there than 
not you know i don't it doesn't bother me at all so yeah thanks i appreciate you saying that though how far what is that some of our friends got a pressure one. Oh yeah 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 they the husband Chad, he he's been over here once with a friend, and his mm-hmm. friend Chad got him out of town, so he hadn't been back. I tried to get him to come back over after the baby was born. Mm-hmm. I don't know the pressure ones. Yeah, okay. yeah. I want to try to get you to come back over again. Yeah, yeah. It's, they're, uh, yeah. It's been, you know, this is my first year there, so it's just kind of getting acquainted with the church. Yeah, it's a big church. It is a big church. <laughs> Just make sure. Yeah. Are you going to talk more about what the Jews believe in the Sinaiwoods? Oh, I can. Yeah, absolutely. I meant to. Uh, I forgot to mention that whenever you know what Jesus did, because this is a real significant part in the story. Because he gets Peter to affirm this, and then in, in all the Gospels, next thing out of his mouth is, "This I will die. I will be taken, and I will be killed." And in, this is where, and I don't remember if it's in, I can't remember which account it is. Um, yeah, it is. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Never, Lord, they shall, this shall never happen to you. After Jesus told him, I'm going to die. And Jesus turned and said to Peter, the same Peter who just professed him, get behind me, Satan. You're stumbling, you are a stumbling block to me. You do not have in mind the con- concerns of God, but merely human concerns. They wanted someone to whoop the Romans' rears. That's who they wanted. They didn't want to be taken over by the Gentiles anymore, which is what they'd suffered since they since they left in 586 BC, and they were tired of it. That's that's who they wanted, and you see it in the disciples too. Shall we call? You, you see Jesus and Jesus and the disciples walking along. And someone's ridiculing him or something. I can't remember off the top of my head exactly what it is. Shall we call fire down upon him? What, zap him, man. We're tired of getting messed with. That's what, that's what he wanted. And that's why, that's why the Jews could bring, him, bring them to the Roman authorities. And you see what they say whenever he tries to dismiss it. Hey, he said he's the Christ. He said he's a king. Um, and he's coming to take you over. Yeah. Ironically, they turned to... Absolutely, it's it's hugely ironic. Hugely ironic. Yeah, it's there's a lot going on with what, especially his interaction with the Pharisees, and even his interaction with the disciples as he's talking about this kind of things. Yeah, I'll talk about that briefly. So everybody gets back. Uh-huh. Some of it is what Luke is doing. He um, he's writing to a Greek audience and trying to present Jesus as the ultimate man. Um, some of it is Jesus took this name, and we'll address that in just a couple of in just a couple of minutes. Oh, what what was going on with that exactly? Um, actually, probably less than that. I think it's the next slide. But um, I promised y'all uh, uh, before we left to um, to discuss this Messiah issue a little bit more. So. In Matthew 16, same chapter, right after he gets Peter to confess who he is, the, ne- the very next thing is Jesus for the first time telling his disciples that they will take me and they will kill me. And particularly in Matthew, it gets met by a response. Peter, the same one who confessed him as the Christ, the Son of God, took him aside. So you can't tell me he knew he was talking to God whenever he said this. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Never, Lord. He said, this shall never happen to you. Yeah. Yeah? If, if you think that's God, you don't say that, right? Okay. No, God. No. <laughs> right. This is, this is Peter's great attribute and his great downfall throughout, you know, throughout particularly the Gospels. It gets fixed at the end once he sees the resurrected Christ. But before then, it's that this great enthusiasm, but his enthusiasm is off sometimes because this gets this cuts at the heart of what the what the Jewish people wanted in a Messiah and expected out of a Messiah. And Jesus makes the point it's because they were selectively reading about who the Messiah was. They wanted someone who was going to whoop the Romans and get them out of their land because 
since 586 BC, when the Babylonians destroyed the temple and kicked them out, they had not gotten to rule them. They, they'd ruled themselves in a limited way um, um, around 100 BC for about 100 years, but they were still controlled by Gentiles. And so that's all they really thought? That's, they thought he was a king. He, he was the son of David. He would conquer just like David conquered. He would set up a kingdom just like David set up. Because it's it's in the Old Testament. That's part of him being this this um, this king. It's the Messiah is out of the promise of David. You will always have someone to sit on the throne. Um, it's there's not no reason for what they believed, but there's not what their conception of it was also limited. Um related to what was in the Old Testament about what the Messiah would be. And, and I think to say that it was revealed in the Old Testament that the Messiah would be God himself is too much. The, the Trinity, you know, and this is an important concept and we'll keep on talking about it. The Trinity was revealed in the New Testament. It existed in the Old Testament. It's not contrary to the Old Testament, um, even whenever we see the Lord is one, um, it's worth noting that the, the word that's chosen for one there doesn't necessarily mean singularity. Like there's another word they could have chosen if they went if they wanted to say one and only one. But it's chosen as it can also be have this group solidarity sense of the word um, uh, but to say that it was revealed in the Old Testament, some people look at um, in Genesis 1 or in Genesis 2 when he says, um, let us make God in our image in the pronouns. There's lots of discussion about that. Is it a revelation of the Trinity? Because it's plural pronoun. Um, some people, there's there are different grammatical arguments and I won't get into all that, but um, or is he talking about God and the and the angels and these kind of things? Uh, but depending on how you take how you take that specifically, you could say that that's a testimony to the Trinity in the Old Testament um, for sure. But um, but to say the whole conception of the Trinity is revealed prior to the New Testament would probably be too much. This has everything to do with Jesus, which is the point I'll make kind of as we go along. Um, so. So our question that I left you with before the break was, did the fact that Jesus was the son of God mean that he was God himself? Okay. Um, So my first point is, this is what the Pharisees accused Jesus of saying. Okay. And uh, son of man. So Jesus called himself son of man during his ministry, continuously, particularly in Luke, you know, but this term he got from the Old Testament. And there's, the tricky thing about it is there's two places it occurs in the Old Testament. It occurs in the book of Ezekiel. The entire book of Ezekiel, God calls Ezekiel the son of man. So it could simply be a reference to a prophet. Okay. The trickier one is in the visions of Daniel, there's one said to be like a son of man who was given an everlasting kingdom presented before and present and was presented before the ancient of days. Um, clearly a sense of equality with God and this eternal, you know, when you start talking eternal kingdom, being able to be present before the ancient of days, um, before um, the one God. So now read Mark fourteen sixty through 64. And you have some questions on the back of that first page. This is right at the end. This is close to the crucifixion. In fact, it was. This is after the Garden of Gethsemane, and when he's on trial, when Jesus is on trial before the Pharisees and Sadducees. Did Jesus ever explicitly call himself God? Um, we'll talk. We'll talk about that in just a second. He did. He was. He was trying to. It was an interesting dynamic he was speaking into. Um, and he's obviously, whatever you want to say, he was very conscientious of that, of that, di- that dynamic um, and understanding of who the Christ was and who God was.
Okay, so for Mark 14, 60 through 64, what were the leaders trying to do to Jesus? You can catch that. Yeah, they're trying. To, yeah, they're trying to condemn him. They're like calling people up, whoever, whoever will volunteer. But the problem is, you have to get people to agree on what he said, and they couldn't even find anyone who could agree on what blasphemous things they said. They were they were trying anything, right? They were just looking for something to to be able to condemn him by. Um, and Jesus wasn't even answering him. He wasn't even acknowledging him. He knew he didn't need to. Um, uh, for sure, because he knew that they didn't have good testimony. And, and so the Pharisees basically, they're like, okay, well, this isn't working. Let's try to get him to say something himself. And of all the times that Jesus would never say something when he knew, you know, sometimes he would say it, sometimes he wouldn't. Can, um, and he was always very considerate of the position, uh, the, can, the situation, obviously. This time he chose to say something in response to their question. Tell us plainly, are you the Christ, the Son of the Mighty One? And he finally says yes. <laughs> but he doesn't just say yes. Um, what's the significance of Jesus talking about the clouds? Let me catch that. Okay, Jesus has been calling himself the Son of Man for a long time. So the problem for the Pharisees is... is is he referring to this son of man or this son of man? Catch that? So he can call himself son of man, and if they tried to nail him down on it, it's Ezekiel. That's what Ezekiel was called. Why can't I call myself son of man? You know, um, it's, a, it's an ambiguous title. But he makes it unambiguous. You will see me on the right hand of the mighty one riding on the clouds. That's why, you know, like most of the time when you read this, you know, what's he talking about clouds for? Why is he talking about? That's why he's talking about clouds. And that's why, because he decided to make it unambiguous. At least it was obviously that, you know, and people can argue, oh, is that still ambiguous? Well, the Pharisees didn't seem to think so. People who knew what they were talking about didn't seem to think so. Yeah. And did, uh, I mean, did he really mean you will see me? I mean, that high priest or people, or was he talking to just the masses in general? I mean, obviously that I high think... priest probably, you know, was a no, right? Mm-hmm. Um, right. But... Or is that just, a, a just, a, just not even really the point? You will see me seated at the... That, no, that's no, that's a, it's a, it's a valid question. It's a good question. I think... High priest or everyone in general will at some point acknowledge that Jesus is the Son of God. I, mean, I think that is the case. They realize where yep. they end up. Mm-hmm. But will people that you know didn't believe in Jesus and ended up in hell, yeah. will they at some point, you know... Uh, absolutely, because the... And we'll see this in the... In the, um, uh, in the we're going to look at one of the creeds later. Um, because the culmination of history is Jesus' return and the resurrection of all. Which sometimes doesn't get taught in Christian teaching either. Is that everyone will be resurrected and then the judgment will come. Oh. Like, there, and then there's the new heavens and the earth, new earth and the real hell. Like, there is no... That ambiguity, not that we have time to really get into it today, but it's a little more complicated than we like to... You know, I die and I go to heaven and it's all done... Uh, you know, they, someone who's not a believer dies and goes to hell and it's all done. That's not really what the, the, total, the total picture of how it all ends. And so he means, you will see me um, whenever I come on the clouds. In the, yeah, I mean, that's my question. It's a long topic. But I mean, so are we, I mean, do we just uh, die and we're just in, in the ground and then when, once judgment happens, then we're resurrected? So there could be hundreds or thousands of years where there's just nothingness or do we go to heaven right when we die and even though you know yeah. obviously what all people that have died and believe in Jesus where, yeah. where, where are they right now right presumably people think you go to heaven right away right yeah but but there's the new heavens and the new earth which need to be created. Yeah. Where are they? Right. Um, it, the, the only indication, it's not real well spelled out either in the New Testament. Um, uh, what Paul says, though, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. Whatever that means. Um, to be absent with the body, from the body is to be present with the Lord. Um, 
There is an intermediate time, though, I think is what doesn't get communicated very well a lot of times. Um, the new heavens and the new earth is our end, end goal. Um, and so the Pharisees definitely thought that he was claiming to be the son of God, putting himself equal um, with who God was. Um, did the fact that, that uh, um, Jesus was the son of God mean that he was God himself? Uh, that Jesus' other opponents seem to think that's what he was saying. So, here's a nice short one for you. Eight, um, uh, John eight fifty seven. I'm sure we'll get to in big church within the next two years, probably. <laughs> we'll have to wait and see how what kind of pace he, he ends up with. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah, Todd, you know there's 22 chapters in John. <laughs> You're on a pace for about 10 years right now. Um. Okay, so. John eight fifty seven. Um, what's Jesus claiming by saying he existed before Abraham? Yeah, is at least pre existence. He's definitely saying he's something more than a man. You know, if you're talking against a secular argument, what he says of all the I am statements. There's these I am statements throughout. We've looked at you know we'll look at some in the big church, and we've we've looked at some before. I believe we've gone through that so far. Um, this is the most, I would say this is the most clear statement that he ever makes to I am God, because I am is the meaning of Yahweh. It's what in, in Hebrew, um, uh, the, whenever God gives his proper name, it's I am. And so that's this, that's part of the significance of all the I am statements throughout John but this one more clear than any of the other. Before Abraham was, I'm claiming that I pre-existed. I existed before Abraham. I am. I am the, you know, and there's significance in that. And God, I am. I am the beginning. It's, it's this significance of I am the always existing one. I always, it's like the to be verb of Hebrew. I existed. I exist. But it's not even I existed. I exist. It's this all-encompassing idea of presence. Um, This is probably the most clear one. I even I was actually watching a Muslim show for you know when I was looking for this some of this stuff. Um, uh, um, The I was watching a Muslim show and they had like a former youth minister talking with the Muslim talk show host about a real look at was Jesus God. And um, they made a couple of different statements and top 10 reasons why he wasn't God. Um, Because he didn't pre-exist and because he never claimed to be God. And it's funny because they'll even in their dialogue, they're like, yeah, verses like John eight fifty seven or whatever. And they'll mention them. So it makes you feel like they've dealt with them, but they don't deal with this because regardless of what you say about Jesus, he clearly said he preexisted. However, you want to interpret the I am. And then you got to deal with how do you interpret I am? How did the people, how did the protesters interpret it? They picked up stones because he said that he was God. So people can say like, oh, well, I am doesn't necessarily mean that. Well, people who knew the people he was talking to sure thought that, you know, you can argue all you want in modern language. But in their cultural context, I am was not an ambiguous statement. Um, it was very clear to them. We And it's a it's a fallacy. It's an error in thinking to be like, just because it doesn't mean that immediately when I read it, that that's not what he was saying. Um because we're completely removed from that cultural context. Um, he was saying, these people obviously thought he was saying, I am. And um, this is someplace else, someplace out of the, um, 
the Gospels. So this is post-resurrection, particularly. And a couple of guys, one named Peter, who we've talked about before, and a a guy named Paul and Titus, um, make a couple of statements. Certainly the strongest... These are the strongest, and some of it has to do with Greek grammar, which I won't bore you with. But... um, uh, just read these two verses really quickly and just, you know, you can answer the questions. Second Peter 1, 1 and Titus 2, 13. 